126 tonight. Psalm 126. So we look at another one of these pilgrim psalms. We will start in verse 1 of Psalm 126. It says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, Psalm 126, to my knowledge, is not an incredibly popular psalm. I I don't really hear a lot of people talking about this psalm. Uh, I'm not so sure that I've ever heard anybody preach on this psalm, and I don't bring that up to uh, try to highlight the uniqueness of tonight's service. The only reason I'm here is because it comes after Psalm 125, so uh, we're going sequentially. But I will say this, Psalm 126 ought to be on your radar and ought to be one of those psalms um, that you turn to often, because if we can get past the uh, kind of the the, the strange... Um, uh, maybe the unfamiliar type language, and we can get into kind of the meaning of what's being said here. Uh, this is a psalm that really does speak to our uh, our reality, really our boots on the ground struggles that we have, and just our experience uh, in day to day life. Uh, some of the difficulty in accessing the psalm is in some of the imagery and maybe some unfamiliarity with what's being talked about there. And then some of the other difficulty is that the way that some of the phrases are translated um, uh, can be kind of difficult to to uh, to grasp. And that's not just a, a King James thing. When you look at the other translations in verses like verse 1 and verse uh, 4, uh, they have a hard time too, really trying to capture what's what's being said. So let's um, let's let's get a little bit of background on the psalm, or at least what most people think the background is. It's uh, it's obvious that this is a psalm about when the Lord delivered His people. It says in verse one, He turned again the captivity of Zion. Uh, that is, He uh, some translations, I think the ESV says he restored the fortunes of um, um, other. Uh, uh, I don't know that there's an actual translation that says this, but if you if you look up the turned again, the captivity, it could also be translated as um, he uh, restored the former prosperity of uh, just the idea that you see as God's people return out of Babylon back to Jerusalem in the exile. Most people think that's what this is in reference to uh, after the Babylonian captivity uh, and the people left and books like Ezra and Nehemiah uh, talk about the return back to Jerusalem and just how the Lord did that and uh, restored His people back to His city. But we could also apply this really to things like the Exodus, if we were to back up a little bit. The people were in slavery for 400 years. The Lord comes, delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
and they are brought out of captivity and taken back into, or at least led back toward the promised land. Or we could also apply this uh, to God's people's experience as it just relates to redemption. So let me give you just a snapshot, or if I say a snapshot, the psalm is tiny, so it's hard to give a snapshot of that, but just a synopsis of what this psalm is all about. He says, when the Lord returned us from captivity, it was like we were in a dream. It was incredible. It was so incredible that even the heathen around said, unbelievers said, God has done great things for these people. And then verse 3, the psalmist says, it is true. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Then you get to verse 4 and essentially what he says here is, Lord, continue your deliverance. Continue to turn our captivity. Now the word continue is not there. Continue the work that you started as the streams of the south uses a little bit of imagery there. And then he says, they that sow in tears will reap in joy and, and so forth and, and so on. Well, two, two ways that this psalm could be split up, and hopefully as we look at it in these two chunks, then the, the, the meaning and application will become clear. Number one, out of verses one through three, the joy of deliverance remembered. The joy of deliverance remembered. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. So if you think about the three things that I mentioned earlier, in the Exodus, God's people who were enslaved for over 400 years, when the Lord returned them or at least delivered them out of Egypt, they were in a place to where they would no longer be oppressed by the powers of Egypt. It was like a dream. I mean, we could go through and, and think about some of the miraculous details there, and that would be like a dream too. But it was just so unexpected and really even so sudden. The same with the return from Babylon. God's people would no longer be polluted by the allurements of a godless culture, or at least Babylon's godless culture. As they brought them there, they were no doubt mistreated on the journey and some were mistreated while they were there. But by and large, when Babylon is mentioned and is really kind of uh, used in a, as a type in the New Testament, it's really a type of the allurement of the world. They brought them there to really have them assimilate into a Babylonian culture. Or we think about, and, and I'm not going to do this with every single one of the one of the uh, the points, but as we think about redemption, and we think about the the weight of conviction, and just the blessing of no longer being weighed down by the burden of sin or the fear of the wrath of God, as Christ and the forgiveness that we've received through Him becomes applied to our hearts. We say, when the Lord turned us again in the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dreamed. Now, four things we could say about this first verse. 
Number one, what it's describing. Number one, it was the end of a nightmare for these people. Right? So relief from misery and hardship, no matter what you're talking about. Whether you're talking about the hardships and misery that were in Babylon, whether you're talking about the hardships and misery in Egypt, whether you're talking about the hardships and misery of being weighed down by sin without any relief and being under uh, deep conviction. The Lord delivered. It was the end of a nightmare. Secondly, the psalmist says it was like a dream. That is, the deliverance was better than we could have ever expected. Better than we could have expected. Number three, this is out of verse 2a, says, then our mouth filled, then our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord has done a great thing for them. So number three, it was euphoric. That is, the joy of it was just overwhelming. It, it stirred laughter. It stirred singing. It stirred praise. And then last, it was evident. It was evident that the Lord had done great things for His people. The heathen said among themselves, those who showed no honor, no fear of the Lord, those who would be unbelievers said, the Lord has done great things for them. That is, great things for His people. So the psalmist looks back and rejoices in that. And again, you could apply this to all three. I mean, I think we can all remember the, uh, if, uh, if you aren't newly converted tonight, I think you can all remember the, 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 the newness of joy that you felt that was your experience whenever you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever the, the weight of your sin was dealt with, when forgiveness became a reality, when reconciliation became a reality, when you began to uh, start your life and your walk in the church of God with the people of God, and all of a sudden the hymns that you were singing meant something to you that they never meant before, and you hit the ground running and you wondered how could this ever end and yet somehow it does doesn't it it begins to taper off that euphoric excitement doesn't last forever and there are times when people hit the ground running and they have this um uh, I don't mean this in sort of in any sort of derogatory way. It just is what it is. They have the the honeymoon experience of of salvation, where everything is new and fresh, and growth is exciting, and 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 the spiritual disciplines are exciting, and so forth and so on. And and then the mundane sets in, and the dream that we had at conversion slowly but surely, fades and gives way to reality. Right? I mean, anybody here when you were converted thought, I will never sin again. Some people thought that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But very quickly you figured out you were way wrong. Some people at conversion thought, this is it. I, I, am, I am going to be all in for the Lord. I'm done with the world. I'm done with all the allurements that, that, that I was entangled with at one time. And it turns out you weren't. 
we could go on with various examples of that and in a real way, that's where the psalmist is here, not necessarily with conversion, but he's thinking about this miraculous deliverance that the Lord had brought. I mean, I want you to think if you were in Egypt for, I mean, you wouldn't have lasted the whole 400 years, but you knew that your people were there for 400 years and and you're brought out and all of a sudden the 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 Red Sea parts and you walk through and then you see Pharaoh and the Egyptian army swallowed up by water and you're on the other side and you think, well, there's no doubt here that the Lord is on our side. All the excitement that would be there, you're turning over a new chapter. You would not guess that within days you would be complaining about the God who just delivered you. Right? You're still on this euphoric high. Or the Babylonians are... Or, or I'm sorry, the the the, the uh, uh, people of God the, the, from Judah that were taken into Babylon, who are bring, being brought back. Finally, we get to go back, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of God. Uh, you remember when we were in Daniel, they were still turning toward Jerusalem to pray. This was a place that they wanted to be, and when Cyrus made the decree to send the people of God back, nothing was going to stop them from rebuilding what had been destroyed until they got there. And what was waiting on them when they got home was not a bunch of helpers. It was a bunch of opposition. And what ended up happening is what should have been a driving force to motivate the completion of God's city and God's temple and so forth and so on ended up being a very, very delayed project. What happened? They ran into trouble, unexpected trouble, unexpected opposition, And then they just kind of got complacent. And for lack of better terms, mundane life set in. They got used to what Haggai says, living in sealed houses. That is, living in uh, personal houses that were luxurious at that point while the house of God laid waste. That was just normal. It made sense to them. They had already figured out in their mind how that made sense. And so he says in verse 4, Lord, we know you've done great things for us, verse 3, but we need to be turned again. Could you turn us a little more? Could could you complete the, the work that you started in us? We were very excited. We were very zealous. We, we were, as it were, we were on fire for the Lord. And then the journey has kind of quenched that fire. We need to be turned again. So verses one through three, the joy of deliverance remembered. Verses four through six, the completion of deliverance anticipated. The completion of deliverance anticipated. So turn again our captivity. 
That is uh, our captivity, our adversity has not yet fully ended. Or in some sense, it still remains. So again, the, the prayer is that the Lord would bring that to completion that He had started in His people. This is not... Well, I think it does illustrate the point. Um, I heard somebody say one time, there are a lot of attractive parking spaces in life. Be careful you don't stay there too long. If you're not careful, you will park it spiritually and never get yourself back in gear. You'll get comfortable. You'll allow your circumstances to convince you that it's time for fill in the blank. Your zeal will be stripped or it will be uh, through discouragement. It will be squashed out. And you will just accept that, well, this is just how I am. You know, this is just how I am. I know, you know, we hear things about growth and I know all that's good, but I don't intend on growing. That's not, that's not, I'm not doing that. I know we hear things about reading Scripture, and I used to do all that, but man, I'm not doing that. Two sermons a week, is that not enough? I know there are areas in my life that need to be addressed, but the truth is, I do not intend on doing that. And the psalmist here says, Lord, would you turn us again? This is where we are. We know your house lies in ruins and it needs to be built, and we're not doing anything about it. Would you please turn us again? Turn us toward you. And now this is where the psalm really gets into where the rubber meets the road. Um, he gives us these, these two similes, these two word pictures. Essentially, he's saying, complete the work you started in us. Verse five, I'm sorry, verse four, he says, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as, do it this way, as the streams in the south. Okay, he's using an illustration here. The streams in the south. Um, now, the streams in the south were really, in the southland, it was really a very dry, parched place with lots of little you, they might not even be big enough to call streams. Lots of ruts that could fill up with water. About 11 months out of the year, there wasn't an ounce of moisture on that ground. Okay, Very dry. Um, uh, not very attractive. About one month out of the year, they would get uh, lots of rain that would make this dry cracked earth with these little streams just look like torrential floods. I mean, it would just come in as far as reading about um, uh, what the uh, encyclopedias say about this land. The, 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 the rainfall would come in and transform it overnight. Rather than looking like a barren, dry place, it would look like a, um, a raging flood. And so this is what 
one man says, he says, so completely can the Lord change the status of his people. For such a total change, the psalmist prays in Israel's name. So he's saying, Lord, bless us. Right now we're like this dry ground that's just, I mean, just uh, uh, parched, not an ounce of moisture. Would you bless us to be like the streams in the south? That is, those those streams that come down and turn a dry wasteland into a flood? Well, the prayer is really for sudden and complete change or deliverance in the psalmist's life. Well, that's our preferred mode, isn't it? I mean, this is the kind of deliverance where um, God comes in and really makes a big change all at once. There's nothing wrong with a prayer like that. As a matter of fact, it would be a whole lot more convenient on us if that's the way God answered all our prayers, wouldn't it? Just make the, make the difficulty go away. Help this necessary change not be hard for me. Take the pain away. Take the growing pains away even. Make it immediate. We don't wait well, do we? We, we? we don't wait well. That's not that's not our strength. And the truth is God can produce growth this way, but it is not his normal method. Okay. So just in case you were getting excited about the streams of the south being the way God's going to be working on you the rest of your life, that's not God's normal method. He does that sometimes. I've heard of people who were um, who were um, uh, enslaved to substance abuse for years and years and years and years, and then all of a sudden the Lord just took that urge away and they never went back. I really, I say I've heard of people. I know one person that that's happened to, and they never went back. I could probably find several thousand more where that hadn't even been close to the case. So the Lord does this sometimes in special ways, but it's, it's really not His, his normal method. Um, I've, I've talked about this hymn before, but John Newton does a great job, and his, it's, it's unfortunate this hymn is not very accessible in our hymnals. Um, but he wrote a hymn called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And, and he, uh, he really captures the, it's his own experience, but I think the experience of all of you here uh, in this hymn. It goes like this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request, and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with His own hand, He seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, 
humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Now, just in case that was too wordy, Newton essentially says this, I pray that the Lord would bless me to grow. I prayed that because that's his will for me. And then it seemed like he was doing everything he could do to keep me from growing. My hope was that he would just zap me with the holy zap and I wouldn't be tempted by sin anymore. And that would be that. But he says, I would have these plans and I would have these schemes and the Lord would uproot those and none of those things were working. And essentially, when he gets to the end, the insight that the Lord gave him was, if you want to grow, John Newton, then you're going to have to find your all in me. Not in your own self-sufficiency and not in your own quick fixes that you think will help you grow. It's got to be real. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you relate to the words of that song, but you all relate to, I would think, seeing an area in your life that needs growth, deciding that that's where you were going to put your time and attention, and then a week later figuring out you're way worse off then than you were before you even said anything. You know, you figure out that you're too impatient and you need to be a little more patient. And a week in, you realize you're way more impatient than you thought you were a week ago. Or anger, or you need to be more kind, or whatever. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just make yourself a goal tonight and we'll talk about it on Sunday because that's the way it works. We want self-improvement. God wants Christ-like conformity. And those two seem the same on the outside, but they're nothing close to being the same as far as the transformative work that the Lord works in His people. So we like quick fixes. That's typically not the way God does it. So, Lord, turn us like the streams in the south. And then He takes another image. And this is in verse 5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So the first illustration, the ground goes from dry and cracked to flooded with water. This illustration is of someone who endures in sowing in tears, anticipating that they will reap in joy. Okay, this is more of a process. The prayer is that the Lord would deliver um, His people fully, that it would be brought to completion over time. And the illustration here is that growth is a process. There's a sowing and there is a weeping. I'm sorry, a reaping. And there's a lot of waiting in between, right? You think about the uh, just the illustration as a whole. A farmer goes out, he sows his seed, and then essentially he just has to wait on God to do what only God can do to bring forth growth in that crop, to bring forth a harvest. Well, the sowing and reaping is a 
I mean, this is an illustration that the New Testament picks up on several times. Galatians uh, chapter 6, probably the most familiar one to you, that uh, God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. James chapter 5, this is uh, is where I want to go. James chapter 5. Um, we'll pick up on this illustration in verses 7 through 11. Um, he spends the first six verses condemning the, uh, the rich and the corrupt who have been mistreating God's people. And verse 7 he says, speaking to the Lord's people, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. Now what James is doing in this passage, 7 to 11, he's really illustrating a life pattern in this text, and he's going to illustrate it three different times. And the pattern is this, that normal life, I don't care where you're born, I don't care what you're doing. I don't really even care what category of life you're thinking about. Work, marriage, children, church, fill in whatever other blanks you want to fill in. He's laying out this pattern of what normal is. And what's normal is this. You're going to labor. You're going to endure suffering. Now the intensity of that can vary. You're going to labor. You're going to suffer. You're going to endure. And then you're going to receive. Labor, suffer, endure, receive. In a fallen world, James says, brothers and sisters, you need to lay hold of this. Now, he starts out with uh, these people who are being oppressed. And he says, be patient. The first illustration is just the farmer. Behold the husbandman. Okay, He plants. Well, first he, he, he plows and then he plants. And then he just waits on the fruit of the earth and he has to have long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. Now we could easily turn this into a sowing and a reaping. I mean, this fits for the farmer. Right, he sows and then he has long patience for it. Anybody signing up for that? A life where you have to have not just patience, long patience. What's he waiting on? The early and the latter rain. Well, what day on the calendar do those come? Whatever day the Lord decides, right? I mean, this isn't a formulaic thing. He sows in faith and anticipates that as God blesses, he's going to receive. 
He's going to reap. He's sowing and reaping. And then he says, drives home the point, be ye also patient. And we've talked about this before with the word patient, but patience and endurance, it's the same Greek word. So when it's saying be patient, really he's saying keep going. He's not saying you're so patient because you put up with obnoxious people. He's saying you're so patient under trials that you endure. You keep moving forward. You continue to be steadfast and faithful. So be patient. Establish your heart. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Then he gets to illustration number two. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Okay, take the prophets for example. What did they do? They spoke in the name of the Lord. What gave them the idea that they needed to speak in the name of the Lord? Who gave them that idea? Well, God did. That's the work that God called them to. Well, who gave them the message? God did. That was the work He had called them to. And yet, as you read through the prophets and read about the prophets, how many of the prophets do you read about whose experience was like that southern stream? That is, they preached to a dry desert land and then all of a sudden the message just hit and there was a transformation. You don't read that. Now you might say Jonah, but you probably need to revisit that book if that's what you're saying. Okay, He waffled. You don't read that. You read of people who had to endure, people who had to suffer, and then people who would later receive the end of the Lord, which is His mercy, which is His grace. And for us, as we're thinking about this, is the fullness of our salvation. And then he goes on and says, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and you've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. Now, it's really helpful whenever we think about the patience of Job to think about it more like the endurance of Job, right? Because Job was not, uh, when you read the book, Job was not patient in the sense of very kind and tolerable toward his miserable comforters, especially at the end. But the Lord did give Job endurance. And Job received the tender mercies of the Lord. So it's this sowing and reaping. And by implication, waiting. And so, brothers and sisters, the promise in Psalm 126, now we're thinking about this as it relates to your redemption tonight. The promise in Psalm 126 is that God has redeemed you. He has brought you back out of captivity. And there is still redeeming work to be done as far as your practical experience is concerned. You know, redemption is multifaceted. You were redeemed, you are being redeemed today, and you will be redeemed in the future. That is, the redemption process will be complete, but it's not complete yet. So here's what Psalm 126 has for us. It's a promise that as you sow in tears, as you seek to live a faithful life, as you seek to 
have the Lord turn you and you turn back to Him again and again and again, as you sow in tears, that precious seed will doubtless result in a harvest of joy. You know this already, but the Christian life is not a constant mountaintop experience. But you want to know where those mountaintop experiences come from? They come from being faithful in the sowing so that you're reaping joy later down the road. So you're not what you will be. And our part of redemption now is to continue to sow and sow and sow and sow. And you will sow in tears. But brothers and sisters, Psalm 126 gives us the promise that it will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. What's the message of Psalm 126? Endure. Endure. So, do not grow weary in well-doing. This is the normal Christian experience. The Lord delivers. Things are initially exciting. That excitement dies down. And the Christian life is not ridden on a tidal wave of emotion. The Christian life is lived out through faithful endurance as we anticipate and look to God in hope to bring to completion what He started in us. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You for a psalm like this and just for the reminder of uh, just the real life that every single one of us live. We all have areas where we need to grow. We all have areas that need to be um, addressed. And Father, we all um, have our own little pockets of uh, complacency. And so I pray that You would shake us up from that that You would bless us not to live based off of feeling and emotional highs, but that You would bless us to live a life that is of, uh, made of faithful endurance, that we would uh, love You, that we would pursue You, that we would believe You, that as we sow in tears, we will reap in joy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.